Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier this week, with Hurricane Ian posed to make landfall in southwestern Florida, Fight Toxic Prisons issued the following call for support and a list of demands. As Hurricane Ian, projected to become a Category 3 hurricane in the coming days, threatens Florida, over 176,000 people behind prison bars and in detention centres lie directly in its path with no ability to evacuate. We need your help applying pressure to ensure the horrors that happened at FCI Beaumont during Hurricane Harvey and the disaster that Florida prisoners had to endure during Hurricane Michael don't happen again. This tactic proved effective when we forced North Carolina and Virginia to evacuate prisons ahead of Hurricane Florence. Demands. Mass release now. For areas not yet impacted, allow incarcerated people to be released to their family members when possible. Start with the elderly and medically compromised. Evacuate facilities and evacuation zones immediately. Stockpile. Facilities not yet in evacuation zones or unable to evacuate must stockpile food, water, medicine and sanitation supplies. For more information, please visit fighttoxicprisons.wordpress.com. Ecuador's prisons are in crisis. Over 400 incarcerated people were killed in prison in 2021 and overcrowding affects over half of Ecuadorian prisons. In 2021, President Guillermo Lasso announced he would pardon thousands of incarcerated people for low-level crimes in an effort to curb overcrowding and violence. But conditions in prisons remain largely the same. On September 5th, the mayor of Guayaquil, Cynthia Viteri, proposed building prisons on uninhabited islands off the coast of Ecuador in order to ensure that they have no communication with the mainland and that they cannot escape. According to Viteri, This proposal is a recommendation from Israeli consultants hired by the state to suppress violence in prisons. Another alternative the state is considering is to cede control over prisons to local municipalities, such as in Colombia and Mexico. But perhaps the most dramatic proposal by the state is to privatize prisons, which would delegate the construction, surveillance, and administration to private corporations. This plan would be modeled after the private prison system in the U.S. But this change would require a constitutional amendment. Experts are skeptical of this program and argue that it would not curb violence or overcrowding. In 2007, Monroe County, Indiana, KiteLine's home, proposed building a new jail. They claimed that the old one was decrepit and under capacity. In the end, the new jail was not built thanks to public opposition and sky-high cost projections. Now, 15 years later, the county has proposed a new jail again. The old one is decrepit and under capacity, claim proponents. Like last time, those in favor of the new jail are presenting it as social work, promising to build in mental health and addiction services, nonprofit services, and gardens. Carceral humanism is on full display in what will actually simply be a widening of the carceral net. Those in favor of the new jail cite two kinds of problems with the existing one, 
capacity, and conditions. The capacity claim is a red herring, as bookings in the jail actually decreased between 2003 and 2018, according to a study by RJS Justice Services, commissioned by the county. As for conditions, they are bad at the jail, but the county has failed to price a renovation instead of a brand new facility and to consider how conditions might improve with a smaller population. A study authored by an IU criminal justice professor and funded by Arnold Ventures identified a great range of changes the city and county could implement that would jail fewer people, particularly on probation violations. Not only has local government failed to consider this 2021 study, but its own studies are all based on data collected in 2018 or prior. Yet during COVID, the jail population fell from its regular high of 280 to 185. Did crime surge? City residents don't think so, but the town has not published these statistics, whether because they don't exist or are simply late is unclear. The proposed site for the new jail is an 80-plus acre parcel of land in the southern part of the city, far from public transportation and including several wetlands. The county has signed a contract to purchase this property for $10,022,000, all before any kind of construction or even design work begins. Another $50 to $60 million would be dedicated to the first phase of design and building, and then another unspecified amount beyond that to pay for the additional buildings and facilities that the county wants to place at the site. The jail would be funded with bans, bond anticipation notes, short-term debt securities issued by municipal or state governments to fund projects, and edit the economic development income tax, even though jails are the farthest thing from economic development. The city and county have not yet consulted the public on whether it wants to spend its tax dollars on this behemoth. Luckily, the contract gives the county several opportunities to get out of the deal before the closing date in January, based on feasibility, environmental harm, and financing. Also, as in 2007, local residents are massing to organize against new jail construction. A group calling itself Care Not Cages has begun to educate itself about the process and possible activist response. If you'd like to get involved in this decarceral effort, you can come to their weekly meetings Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Overlook Community Center, 611 West 12th Street, in the Maple Heights neighborhood of Bloomington. When he was appointed by Mayor Eric Adams earlier this year, Department of Correction Commissioner Louis Molina said he was unequivocally committed to transparency and restoring public trust in the agency, which was plagued by corruption and 16 deaths in its custody in 2021. Last week, as the number of deaths at Rikers Island and other jails threatened to tie last year's total, he tried to skew the tally. Elmore Robert Pondexter, 59, had been held at Rikers since April 2020 and was complaining to his family of chest pains and difficulty breathing before collapsing on September 18th. He was then taken by authorities to Bellevue Hospital, where his heart stopped. Though his pulse returned, doctors determined he was brain dead and he was taken off life support and died four days later. Hours before Pondexter's death, Molina said to make sure we do what we can in order to keep his death off the department's count. That's just what happened. Pondexter was granted compassionate release while he was in the hospital and his death was kept off the department's count. At first we were happy he died with dignity and we knew he wouldn't die a prisoner, Aquanda Morris, one of Pondexter's children, said. But then I thought about it. Something is not right. They are trying to relinquish their responsibility. 
A DRC spokeswoman said the compassionate release was technical in nature and designed to ensure that final hours are spent in privacy with family. But Melina's email shows the extent to which the department is trying to avoid scrutiny for the growing number of deaths in its custody. If Pondexter's life had ended while he was still held by Rikers Island, he would have been the 15th death in custody this year. This is not the first time Melina has personally tried to adjust the death count. In April, 42-year-old Walter Turner was given Tylenol at Rikers when he complained of severe stomach pain. Less than a week later, he went septic and suffered cardiac arrest during a surgery. At the hospital, Melina told Turner's mother, Rosalind Green Turner, that he would get the charges dropped to get him out of custody. Although she initially refused so that the jail system would not avoid the scrutiny of his death while in custody, she worried that she would be hit with the medical bills. She says she ultimately gave in when she found out that family visits would be limited, their pastor could not visit, and Turner could not be transferred to a long-term care facility while he was incarcerated. She believes those restrictions were designed to pressure her to consent to the plan to release her son, who ultimately lived but lost significant brain function. In recent years, the city's jail system has been in a state of constant crisis due to overcrowding, violence and consistent sick-outs from corrections officers. Oversight measures designed to curb the horrific conditions have not always yielded results. In June, a federal option to take over Rikers was suspended when a judge approved a reform plan promising long-awaited results. Days after Molina was appointed, in January, he fired the department's top investigator after she claimed she defied his order to get rid of thousands of disciplinary cases against guards. A total of 47 Alameda County Sheriff's deputies were told via letter on Friday that they were relieved of their law enforcement duties because they received unsatisfactory results in their psychological examination dating back to 2016. That means the deputies, roughly 5% of the 1,000 members sworn force who received D not suited, will be stripped of their arresting powers and firearms, but they will retain their pay and benefits. In this letter, Sheriff Gregory Ahern promised to schedule another psych exam and that his intention is to resolve this issue as quickly as possible and return to full duty status once you obtain a suitable finding. The letter comes the same month the former deputy Devin Williams Jr., 24, shot and killed a couple in their Dublin home after he finished a double shift at Santa Rita Jail. He had been having a romantic relationship with the wife who had been a nurse at the John George Psychiatric Center. Sources indicate that Williams failed his psychological exam and because of liability issues, the sheriff is now auditing the department for other failures. When asked if the audit was prompted by Williams, spokesperson Ray Kelly answered, I'd have to say yes. Williams did not pass the probationary period when he applied for the job at Stockton Police. However, he was hired as an Alabama County Sheriff's Deputy in September 2021. At a news conference on September 7, Kelly said that Williams passed all the reference and psychological tests and there was nothing in his background that would have prevented him from being hired as a deputy. Kelly called Williams' record with the department immaculate. 
Civil rights attorney Adonte Pointer questioned just how many cases would have to be opened up again if these unsuitable deputies were involved in any type of arrests or excessive force. Pointer also pointed out how long these deputies have been working on the streets with these type of test results. This past week, we spoke to Swift Justice, who is an incarcerated organizer in Alabama. Thousands of Alabama prisoners recently began a labor strike to protest poor conditions across the state, where prison facilities are overcrowded, understaffed, and notoriously dangerous. In today's conversation, Swift Justice answers some questions about the recent retaliation that strikers have faced, and he updates us on the strike's progress, some of the unprecedented challenges that they're facing, and how he's inspired by the people who pushed the idea forward. All right. Um, I'm Swift Justice. I am incarcerated in the Alabama Department of Corrections, and uh, I'm an inside activist. Of course, I don't know if you've done any research on who I am, but they, uh, I've been doing this for quite a while. So I am here to answer any questions that you might have. Of course, I'm sure it's because of the fight uh, that's going on right now. Yeah, exactly. We really just want to hear what's going on as recent as today, but also how things have been leading up over the month of organizing. I know there's a lot been happening of retaliatory nature in the last couple of days. Where would you like to begin? I mean, I, actually, I'm glad you brought that up as far as retaliatory actions. Um, just today, um, one of the strike leaders by the name of Kinetic Justice, who is Robert Earl Council, which has been right along the side of me for years um, in doing what we are calling exposure of Alabama Department of Corrections and fighting against the injustices going on. They actually um, assaulted him uh, once again today and placed him in lockup for his role in the strike that is currently taking place across Alabama. So, um, yes, you're right. Uh, retaliation comes. We're used to it. Um, Robert Earl was actually beaten um, brutally back in 2020 and was air flighted out of West Jefferson, uh, Donaldson Correctional Facility. Um, and that was covered by the media as well. Uh, so, and, and, you know, there's been some smaller scale retaliation, but the retaliation comes in all kinds of forms. This is bird feeding where they're trying to starve these individuals because of their uh, involvement in actually doing a peaceful protest. So, yeah, I mean, it comes in all kinds of forms. Also, I've been hearing that they've been involving people on work release to make up for the labor shortages. Um, that is correct. And matter of fact, the um, current uh, retaliation towards Robert Earl Council actually had to do with that and it ties that uh, action of their retaliation together because what he had done is he had uh, learned as well as what you just said, they were using inmates from Decatur work release uh, to come into limestone. They actually bust them in every day to prepare the so-called meals that they were preparing. And they did so forcing some of these guys to do it. They did not even want to do it. And one of the guys actually left the kitchen area and what we call it is it escaped that area and made it to the blocks. And he actually found Robert Earl Council and Robert Earl Council uh, did a video and aired that video inter interviewing this individual. Um, I can't remember the guy's name uh, off the top of my head, but 
he actually interviewed him, and this guy actually was telling how he told uh, administration at the Cater work release how he did not want to do um, go against the strike and did not want to be placed in danger of retaliation towards him for doing what they were requiring him to do as far as fixing the meals. And they made him do it anyhow under the threat, if you don't do it, um, this will happen to you. And one of those things that he said was, you will be placed in segregation and put behind the fence in a level four or level five prison. So they pretty much forced him to do that. And that is what led up to the retaliation against Robert Earl Council today. Yeah, I saw that video. It says a lot about the pressure that you're putting on administration. How is communication um, between different facilities going? I, I've been seeing that a lot of uh, facilities and people are joining in, and there's a lot of a lot of calls for people to join in in any kind of work stoppage. I mean, it, it goes great. We have a system to where we use uh, outside organizers that actually get in touch with other guys that are in other facilities, and they pass on messages and actually uh, help us to orchestrate and organize what we do do. Um, I have to give those outside organizers um, their prop. They have actually been on top of things, orchestrating and doing this. Uh, and I also have to give the guys who are involved in every last major facility in the state of Alabama uh, their props for actually participating and making history, so to speak. And it's really not so to speak. It's actual act. This is one of the first, uh, and it's an unprecedented uh, event that has happened here in Alabama. At no time do I recall in the history of the United States of America, especially Alabama, where every major institution, every single individual inside that institution refused to go to their institutional jobs. Yeah, absolutely. It feels really historical, honestly. Can you say anything or tell me anything about the weeks leading up or um, maybe the first day uh, of work stoppage, if you have any comments on that, and also how you think things will go for you in the next couple of days? Well, honestly, I, I, um, to be honest, and I'll be brutally honest, I have a bad habit of being brutally honest. When this was brought to me um, months ago, uh, through a, a, a you know, woman by the, the name of Christina who put on the rally in Montgomery that coincided with this strike. It was actually the very first thing that was the rally was, you know, planned due to an experience she had with her husband being attacked and stabbed at a, another facility. And this is where I, I'm brutally honest. I actually declined to actually get involved. And the reason why I declined to get involved in that was because, number one, over the past number of years that we've been involved, we have done the same thing, protested and rallied and this and that, and very few people would show up. The most that we would have in Alabama would be 20 people. So, you know, I'm a true believer that if you continue doing things over and over again, doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results, that is the true definition of insanity. So I actually declined to get involved. Um, and I've actually had to eat my words on that because I told her, I said, you know, nothing is going to change. Nobody is going to get involved. But, you know, she has shown me that through her persistence and the persistence of people outside that are growing and are inspired to actually make a change and are getting tired of what's going on in Alabama, that, you know, more and more people showed up at that rally. Um, following 
about three or four weeks before the rally was to take place, um, individuals on the inside decided that they wanted to, to strike there again. I declined to be a part of that and not necessarily be a part of it, but be a, a part of the organizing part because I did not believe in actually going and doing last minute uh, striking. I believe in trying to organize and get things together. But at the same time, one thing I have learned is I'm not always right. And I am up for learning and I have learned a valuable lesson in this right here because, you know, it shows through the action of what's gone on through Alabama the past few days that individuals are tired. Individuals are willing to stand up. and Individuals are wanting change inside this prison system. And most of all, these individuals are wanting to be humanized once again and seen as men and women. Yeah, absolutely. This really shows. I like, I, it's interesting to hear um, that kind of perspective of not having a belief or faith or um, feeling like really getting involved in sort of last minute type of organizing, especially because you have such a long history with a more thorough kind of like time-based organizing. And I'm wondering like, I don't know, like what is the difference of how things are feeling right now? I mean, in such a historical and unprecedented moment, how does it how does it feel? Like how are people talking about it? Um, does it feel different than other organizing or actions that you've participated in? For me, it, it is 100% um, different. Uh, for me, there's a lot of inspiration. They actually have put a new flame in me to actually continue to push. Um, as you know, anybody who's doing this kind of work especially under these circumstances, you know, the, it, it is easy to get burned out on these things, especially as much as uh, I've been involved in, especially as much as Robert Earl's been involved in this, because Robert Earl's been on the scene a whole lot longer than I have. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as far as the guys in here, man, you have a lot of mixed emotions. You've got a lot of guys who don't have any hope in what we're doing and what's going to happen, because what you have to understand is you have a lot of new guys. We've been doing protesting and uh actually inside activism since 2014 hard. I don't know how much people know about the history of modern day protesting with the prison uh, movement, but, you know, it is a true fact that the prison movement actually was rebirthed right here in Alabama in 2014. And that led to not only uh, strikes across the nation, but other states to actually start doing things for themselves. But I am seeing these new guys with you know, iffy uh, mentalities, but I'm also seeing guys who have been in prison as long as I have, they are seeing and, and understanding, hey, this is a golden opportunity. Uh, this is the best opportunity that we've had in a long time. It's coming together perfectly, whether it's because of our own actions or whether it's a spiritual intervention. Whether God put his hand in it and made, it, made this his time, uh, I don't know. But one thing I do know is I'm starting to see a lot of guys being more inspired to sit there and say, you know what, we don't need these jobs. Um, the courts have uh, turned their backs on us and shut down. The parole board in Alabama has shut down. Society has been done shut down on us. So now it's time for us to shut down on them and let them run this prison system themselves. Without us, they already know that they cannot run it. Yeah, it's very matter of fact in the end. What feels different or powerful about a work stoppage um, in comparison to other kinds of actions well, you only have two actions in prison that you can do as far as getting the attention of the public. And the action that uh, society is used to is seeing blood and gore, uh, seeing massive riots. 
and things like that. One of the things that is so powerful about the way we have come to uh, understand in this movement that we do as far as peaceful is that number one, society has already given a stigma over everybody who is incarcerated saying that they're animals and they're murderers or rapists or robbers, they're whatever it might be in the mind frame and that they are not capable of being civilized. And that is something that it, it just shows right here in what we're doing today and what we have been doing in the past few years as that it can be done civilized and these are not animals, these are men and they can do exactly what they set out to do, be peaceful about it. And that is something also that they're trying to do is they're trying to remain peaceful so it doesn't turn out to be another 1971 Attica. And that is so remarkable that individuals can come from such a violent background and such a violent environment and come together and say, you know what? We're not going to be warring against each other. We're going to call peace and we're going to do what we got to do in order to gain freedom and justice for ourselves. And not only ourselves, but our, the children who are coming up behind us in the prison system. And how do you feel that is, how is that enduring? Do you think that sentiment will continue and grow stronger? I can only hope it does. Um, I hope that we are setting an example and, you know, that people latch on to that in the future. Um, can I promise that this will always be the fact? I, I cannot promise that it will always be the fact. I cannot, always, uh, I cannot promise that it will always be the platform that people can use. Um, the thing is, is we have a strong hope that in the future that people can continue doing this and get attention. But the only way that people are going to be able to get attention in this manner is that society starts changing their mind frame on what kind of individuals are inside the prison system. We got to understand that the only reason we are looked at the way we are looked at is because society has that uh, mind frame to see us that way. That is something that our grandparents have taught us all these years. So we continue to actually see individuals inside the prison system as animals. And until society starts to see us differently, um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a task. We're going to have to keep on fighting and keep on doing what we do is in a peaceful manner. And if it does turn into a violent manner, you know, I cannot sit there and blame the individual on that aspect because sometimes it just turns out that way. And sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. I hope it never has to be, uh, come to that, especially in this setting right here, but you never can fail. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, on KiteLine, we do, a, you know, we do a lot of features. We do a lot of personal features and, um, long-form interviews about experiences, but it's true that things are really shutting down. It's getting increasingly difficult to communicate with people. It's, it takes like a lot of bravery, and also you have to deal with a lot to be able to uh, contact anyone on the outside. Um, there's risks involved, and it's also honestly usually completely inaccessible to people. So I, I think I think you're right that this is speaking much much louder than anyone can as an individual. Um, definitely it is. And like I said, I, I continuously to take my hat off to the individuals who hold strong and actually keep this in the road the way we have planned it over the years. So it speaks volumes in their own morality and, and, and the way that they carry themselves. And like I said, I just hope society recognizes that and takes that into consideration. I, I would just I, the only thing I can do, you know, I'm steadily eating my words on how this turned out and I am going to steadily, continuously, although I have, I did not have my hands in this one to organize, I am going to steadily tell everybody who I've told it wasn't going to work, you made it work, you have done what you've done, and you made me eat my words, and I am so proud of every last individual who has rose up to be new leaders in this, 
And, you know, I was always taught that the only way to be a leader is to be able to enable others to be leaders. And I am a true believer in that. So I am also a believer that a leader is a great follower and I do not mind following any of the uh, steps that y'all are taking right now. They really made me want to salute them and I do salute them, all outside organizers and inside organizers. I salute you and you have done something amazing. As always, thanks to everyone who helped with the show. We'll share more updates on this next week. We'll have some resources on our website, and please follow our social media for call-ins and other ways that you can help this effort out. This has been KiteLine. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.